0: Welcome to Bunker Start Your Week. I'm Ros Taylor and joining me is Hannah Fern. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Our public services are in good shape, apparently. That's what the Tory party chairman, Greg Hands, said yesterday, which I must admit came as something of a surprise to me. After the four-day junior's doctor strike last week, we found out that Royal College of Nursing members have rejected the latest pay offer from the government. What was that pay offer, Hannah? And were we expecting the nurses to reject it?
1: So the deal that was on the table was a 5% rise for nurses, but also a one-off cash payment, which was sort of in lieu of lost wages last year to acknowledge that they had been underpaid last year too. But a ballot of RCN members did reject it by 54% voting to uh, to vote it down, even though the government has called this a final offer. So there's nothing else sitting on the table to come back to discuss right now. Um, And yes, we were expecting them to accept it, in fact, because other healthcare workers represented by Unison, um, including ambulance staff, paramedics and so on, had accepted this deal. So, yes, the decision among members came as a surprise to the union's leadership, I think, and they've now hastily organised another 48-hour walkout at the beginning of May to show that they're committed to strike action and to representing their members, but this was unexpected.
0: It's a difficult position for the leader of the Royal College of Nursing, isn't it, Pat Cullen, because she seems to have underestimated how angry her members were.
1: Yeah, I mean, the membership, a part of it at least, that 54%, is clearly very radicalised now, feels incredibly let down and expected more from the government. And unions themselves now internally fear that this could essentially split nurses and weaken their bargaining power because some nurses did want to accept it and do want to move on and and want that that immediate rise. So in response, Cullen has come out hard and is talking about rolling strikes right up until Christmas. But it is, it's, it's difficult to see how they can force the government back to the table when this could be a useful kind of bedding in point for the government to stick to their commitment to to that 5%.
0: And these strikes will be worse than the ones that came before, won't they?
1: Yes, they they could be because they are um, coordinated to line up with junior doctors as well. So, yeah, it could have a very significant uh, impact on the NHS. In fact, you would expect them to say some of this, but the groups that represent managers in the NHS have been very clear about their concern about the impact on patients. So NHS providers, which is the group that represents people like NHS chief execs and chairs of trusts and so on, has described them as unsustainable and also said that the union threats are what they call an ugly situation. So they're really escalating their language there. And Matthew Taylor, who is the chief executive of the NHS Confederation, listeners may remember him from you know being very close to, to Blair in the Blair years and the policy uh, unit there. He's even described this as uncharted territory and you know his conversation about this has, has been kind of more not sympathetic because that's not a position he can put himself in, but certainly more kind of understanding of the tensions you know within the NHS and, and the needs for nurses to be fairly rewarded. So to hear him talking about those fears is is a kind of a pause for thought, really.
0: Yes, and the RCN is also planning to stop doing A and D in cancer care as well, which is obviously yeah, absolutely, yeah,
1: exactly. And so, I mean, they they stop. There's, there's always um, a, a workaround, so patients are never left in a, a critical condition without support. But yes, once you step down from some of those really important areas like cancer care, that that really does, um, uh, I, I suppose, state your intention, doesn't it? That it's it's a real bedding in of their position. And the shadow health
0: secretary, Wes Streeting, was out and about at the weekend doing interviews, and he said he didn't support those NHS strikes, which is still at odds with the majority of public opinion,
1: isn't it? It is. He said that. And he also appeared in another interview, uh, essentially not committing to any position on on Labour's intention around a pay deal, you know, what it would do in in the, the government's position. He really Hesitated to commit, and that's put a lot of people's backs up. And as you say, the latest polling overall suggests that public support for union action in general, so the nurses' strike, but also other public sector strikes, is actually rising despite the strikes ongoing, which is sort of the opposite of what we might expect. And yes, the majority do still support nurses and junior doctors. So, um, an interesting one there. We don't normally see it happen in that way. Do you think public opinion will change
0: before the politicians' positions do?
1: It's possible. I think it is. You would say historically that that is quite likely. That once um, action is ongoing, it becomes very disruptive to people's lives. That their position on it changes and they become uh, more opposed as time goes on. But actually, that's not what the polling is showing right now. But I, I think it is. I think it is a risk, especially for Labour, if Labour doesn't have a clear position. It, it looks like they're just kind of flailing around. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think it's hard to say exactly how it will go, because it's not following the usual pattern at at this point.
0: So we had a lot of talk about winter of discontent back a few months ago when all these strikes were starting. And now we're moving into a summer of discontent, aren't we?
1: And maybe even an autumn of discontent. I mean, as we said, Pat Cullen from the RCN has said strikes right up until Christmas if they don't get a deal their members are happy with.
0: And there's also strikes in education next week. Teachers are going on strike on the 27th this is turning into a nightmare for parents isn't it because it's moving into multiple weeks of disruption after so much was lost during the pandemic
1: it is it's a nightmare for parents personally i'm dreading it I'm sitting here on the final day of the easter holidays and not looking forward to more days off I, also as you say the pandemic i think people are genuinely worried about lost days of education for their children this is it's it's, it's a lot of disruption to their education But it's really important to remember that teachers, when we talk about that disruption and the irritation for parents, that they don't provide childcare. They provide a public service, which is the education of children. And they can't do that well without really good terms and conditions that reflect the significance, importance of their job in our society. So the fact that it's a complete pain in the ass for me and others, and it's really beside the point. And I think, you know, generally, we need to just get behind it and find a way to Absorb that disruption personally, I mean, amusingly, every sort of class WhatsApp note that I've seen about discussing the strikes and the strike dates has been appended with a note of people saying, "Of course, I support the strikes. I think there is genuinely that that appetite of uh, at the moment to to get behind our kids' teachers, but yeah, it is disruptive. Yeah,
0: I'm not seeing any anger either from uh, other parents. So with all this disruption, and uh, the local elections, just two and a half weeks off now, Labour really ought to be confident of making some pretty impressive gains, shouldn't it?
1: It should be. Let's hope so. So in terms of the polls, they are actually tightening a bit. So that's something that Keir Starmer needs to be very aware of. There was a great piece by John Harris in The Guardian this weekend about this. So worth having a look at that. But the current sort of polls of polls suggest that Labour are on 45 and Conservatives on 29 and Lib Dems on 10 now. When Sunak took over as PM, that was a fifty-one twenty-four gap. So that's you know that is shrinking quite significantly. And for Labour, voter ID is going to be an issue as well in terms of turnout and you know getting their vote share to the ballot. So yeah, interesting to see what happens there.
0: Do we know how the polls are tightening? I saw some research that suggested it was people who had been don't knows in previous polls turning back to the Conservatives.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's there's some of that. Um, don't know is going to the Conservatives. And there's also Labour are losing some individuals over certain, um, on the left, over certain policy points. And one of them I already mentioned is uh, they're wavering over um, coming out in full support of strikers. The other is obviously the issue around um, trans rights and so on, which is seeing uh, some of the left uh, hard left leaving labor and also there are some women who are you would describe on the center right potentially who are also feeling that labor aren't strong enough on women and girls rights so that's a that's a real minefield for them as well whereas conservatives have a kind of clear line on that yeah it, you know there are a number of policy issues that, that labor haven't really tackled i think and it's causing people to to move around uh, in a way they hadn't done before it doesn't feel like a very happy ship, in particular this row
0: over the Labour ad that attacked Rishi Sunak for allegedly thinking that child abusers shouldn't go to jail. And I, This was such a strange ad to put really out. Really
1: strange, really weird. Where did it come from? This is not a talking point that people were already aware of or on. Strange choice when there's been so much they could pick from to really grapple that issue. They could look at, you know the billions of wasted funds spent on unusable PPE in the pandemic. There's so many issues that touch people's lives very more directly and personally at the moment, and they and they chose none of those. It's it's
0: quite odd. There was a theory that they were trying to go after Sunak because he was seen as the strongest asset the Tories had.
1: Yes, the depressing thing about that is that you know, some of the discussion was around had they tried to use his image as a you know British Asian man um and and link it to the you know the, the failure of um the British state to deal with some elements of grooming in areas like Rochdale among communities of of um you know Asian men. I, I don't think it was that cynical. If it was that's very depressing and you know I hope somebody would expose that by a piece of public interest journalism. I don't think it was that. I think it's just a kind of failure to really connect with what people are actually talking about. There's so much you can Go for Sunak on, and uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really confused about why they um, sort of alighted on that particular issue, um, but now the the sort of the harm is sort of done there now. I think um, uh, it, it's irritated the kind of strong Labour vote who are actually wavering because of individuals like West Streeting. So if you if Labour lose a lot of people into don't knows or ballot spoiling we could end up in a situation that's much closer to a hung parliament than any of us were expecting um, at a general election maybe six months ago.
0: Let's move to Scotland. Uh, On Tuesday, the new Scottish First Minister, Hamza Yousaf, is going to set out his priorities, and he's got First Minister's questions as well later in the week. What kind of start has he got off to?
1: Well, his fresh start is going to be sort of immediately overshadowed by his predecessor. So what most Scottish people are chatting about this morning is that one of his first acts, one of Yusuf's first acts, may be that he has to suspend Nicola Sturgeon from the party um, because a leaked email has shown that she blocked plans to hire a fundraising manager for the SNP uh, who was an individual that others had approved. And this is important because, as you all know, her husband has been arrested and is being investigated over alleged alleged I will say financial irregularities in the party so um, you know H- Hamza Yusuf now claims that the party's finances are balanced and secure and he's doubling down on fighting the Westminster legal challenge the Scottish gender reforms he's reiterated his commitment to another independence referendum and yes on Tuesday we'll hear much more about his platform as an individual but this is a re- this Overshadowing is a huge problem for him because all people are talking about still is Sturgeon and her handling of the party and her legacy. Um, so it's very difficult for him to strike out as a as a future of the SNP when facing um, that grey cloud ab- above him.
0: It is extraordinary because it was only a couple of months ago that when she resigned, which was obviously quite a shock, people including myself was like you know gone out on a high you
1: know and now it has just all fallen apart absolutely it does raise a lot of questions about why she resigned when she did doesn't it 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 suggests that she knew what was coming and um, was trying to control that narrative and um, you know she's failed to do that now
0: and there just seems to be a lot of low-level sleaze, and there was an issue about a camper van that.
1: Yes, yeah, the camper van did oh, the... not never <laughs>
0: been purchased.
1: So, it's actually, seeing it all unravel now, the surprising thing, in a way, and one thing I sort of admire her for is that she managed to keep a lid on this for decades, didn't she? I mean, if all of this was going on. Um, how remarkable that we're only hearing about it now once she did at least try to make her kind of clean break and and exit uh, stage left, as it were. Um, But yes, not much hope for Yusuf to move on from from that with it it all going on this week.
0: No. The big event coming up later this week that's in Westminster but not in Parliament is a very large protest, which XR, Extinction Rebellion, are holding. They're calling it the big one. This is different from the group that tried to disrupt the Grand National at the weekend. Tell us about that.
1: So this was a large protest organised by a group called Animal Rising, who um, are essentially a campaign group around the way we treat animals in this country, um, an animal rights activist group. Um, They delayed the start of the Grand National by um, bringing hundreds of their individuals into the site, scaling fences, attaching themselves to the jumps and so on. Um, 118 people were arrested on the day. Um, but actually, only 68 were still in custody the next day. So, you know, a large number of arrests there as, as police tried to clamp down heavily on protest, as as we know they are encouraged to do by the government now. So, I would say, you know, it's interesting. Have what what we're seeing here is a radicalisation of protest. I think you know, large numbers turning out for for these events, and also police feeling increasingly motivated to arrest as many as they can. So that leaves an interesting dynamic for this event that we're calling the big one in Westminster and one to watch, I expect.
0: And in fact, one of the horses running in the Grand National died, uh, Hill 16.
1: Yeah, in fact, there were three deaths over the whole weekend, Um, the whole meet at Aintree, three horse deaths. So I mean, it does raise those questions that there are animals do die uh, every time we have large meetings like that and it's rarely talked about actually apart from by groups like Animal Rising so I, I wonder if it is time for us to start having more of a conversation about the impact that those kind of events do have. Now, there's a big
0: conference about Northern Ireland continuing all this week to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And there are various luminaries speaking, people who we don't hear from very often anymore. uh, Bill Clinton, well, we do hear from Tony Blair quite a bit. But (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, is this going to actually lead to any tangible progress in the form of the DUP actually going back into
1: government in
0: Northern Ireland? So
1: the DUP have not shown any inclination that are about to go back to Stormont yet, despite the fact that they are, as you say, being lobbied from all sides. So they had Biden last week. And then over the weekend, the former T-shirt Bertie Hearn was very involved, um, giving his view and really aggressively lobbying for them to return. And now Bill and Hillary Clinton, who are obviously attending this 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement conference, which is going on this week, they're being called in to see if they can do the job, but no sign of compromise yet. So Yeah, nothing moving, really.
0: Well, if the sight of Bill Clinton talking to you can't move you, I remember (laughs) at a Labour Party conference where he spoke and everybody was absolutely rapt. The journalists would not admit it, but they were completely bowled over by his public speaking. (laughs) It was extraordinary. But did Joe Biden's rather brief visit to Northern Ireland, he seemed to head off to the kind of prettier bits of Ireland quite fast Mm. and didn't spend much time in Belfast and Northern Ireland at all. Did he achieve
1: anything at all? I didn't seem to achieve much for Ireland at all. It might be gave him a sort of personal warm glow because he's obviously much better received over there than he is at home at the moment. Um, And I suppose in terms of the other impact, it kind of gave Sunak an opportunity to look like a bit of a well, try to look like a little bit of a global states person or guardian of the union and so on. Although he didn't really pick up on that opportunity in the way he could. I don't know. It'd be embarrassing for Biden if the Clintons do better this week, I think, because he didn't really achieve very much.
0: Now, war has broken out in Sudan. Tell us what happened over the weekend.
1: So Sudan has been an incredibly complicated place since the 2019 uprising um, that ousted Omar al-Bashir, who was a dictator. Um, And there have been efforts now to transition to a democracy, a civilian-led democracy, but they have failed. And what we're seeing now happening on the ground is clashes between Sudan's military and its paramilitary force. It was sort of the two main factions controlling the country. And this is all very incredibly complex, but... Because they, they are now essentially facing off against one another, control um, of the Khartoum presidential palace is in doubt and, uh, and the airport as well. There are at least 100 dead this morning and at least 1,000 injured and their explosions are continuing. It's escalating all the time. Uh, hospitals are running out of blood. The internet has been switched off. All of those things that we see. You know, and Aid agencies have paused food aid work in the nation now um so this is a, this is a significant issue for the country and it does have it, it's a volatile situation that impacts not only that nation but you know the whole region there are people who suspect this will drive more migrants to italy obviously there are huge human rights issues around the power of militia and so on so yeah that is a, a significant significant issue Finally, next
0: weekend, we're all going to get an emergency alert on our mobiles. Yes. So what is this <laughs> alert going to
1: say? And it will say, this is a test of emergency alerts, a new UK government service that will warn you if there's a life-threatening emergency nearby. In a real emergency, follow the instructions in the alert and keep yourself and others safe. And then it at the end, this is a test. You do not need to take any action. <laughs> this is a reassurance. <laughs>
0: Yes, apparently it will still uh, sound even if your phone is on silent, and the only way to oh, avoid if it's it... off.
1: I think it can turn your phone on actually, can or at least it has the functionality to do that. Yes. Oh, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's you know the, there's been a lot of discussion about you know jokes about the, the kind of what was it called when the wind blows and so on. <laughs> would you want to know if you've got ten minutes left before civilization you, as you have known it crumbles? I don't know if I would. But I mean, more seriously, it probably will have quite a useful purpose, actually. What scale of disaster would trigger a message like this? Localised emergencies that could threaten life. So flooding, um, fire, and obviously that's increasingly likely here in the UK with climate change. We think of it as an Australian problem or a Californian problem, large bushfires, but actually... A couple of years ago, we did see outbreaks of fire here in the UK. And so that's something we need to think about. And other severe weather warnings and so on. So anything that's happening locally that poses a danger to life. Interestingly, in the US, they actually use this for other things as well, like missing persons, so to help find you know missing children and so on who've disappeared. Dangerous criminals who they're trying to apprehend or who have escaped from prison or so on, with images of what they look like. I think that's quite useful. We don't seem to be committing to doing that at all. But there we are. That, that's another functionality that could be useful.
0: Yeah, the police were searching a house opposite me yesterday. And I have to say, I, I enjoyed a full view through the window and a <laughs> curtain twitching excitement. We are quite nosy. I definitely on. would
1: like to know what's going on if someone sends it straight to my phone. Great. <laughs> and that's it
0: for Bunker. Start your week. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thank you. You can support The Bunker by searching in Bunker Podcast, and that helps keep us going. And we have a couple of shout outs for Patreon backers. Here's Hannah with today's. Thanks so much
1: to Never Give Up, Philip and Susan Leeper.
0: Have a decent week, everyone. And don't freak out when you get your scary message on the mobile on Sunday. Start your week from the bunker was written and presented by Ross taylor with hannah fern the producer was Kasia Tomashevich with audio production by me jay bailey the lead producer is jacob jarvis and the group editor is andrew harrison with music by kenny dickinson start your week from the bunker is a podmasters production